This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. Here's a pretty easy bet. If you were to ask the average Joe or Jane on the street to tell you everything he or she knows about Hinduism, you probably wouldn't get much. Assuming that the questionee never took a comparative religions course or had any experience with the faith, I would guess that such a person couldn't name a single Hindu sacred scripture, or recall any of the historical figures associated with the tradition. But it wouldn't surprise me at all if, after some thought, the person asked might say something like, oh, that's the one with the caste system. And of course, they'd be correct. Of all the religions practiced in the world today, the only one known to have a distinctive division of labor and social standing is Hinduism. Now, of course, most, if not all, societies and religions have an unspoken measure of status. But to many non-Hindus, caste discrimination seems as inherent to Hinduism as baptism is to Christianity, or circumcision is to Judaism. So just where did this tradition of social division come from? How can it exist in a democracy such as India? Is it spiritually valid? To answer these and many more questions, we turn to Jayshree Gopal of the organization Navya Shastra. Jayashree Gopal chairs the Hindu reform organization Navya Shastra, which she co-founded in 2002. Born in Chennai and raised in New Delhi and rural tribal districts, Dr. Gopal was educated at the Indian Institute of Technology and holds a doctorate in molecular biology from Wayne State University in Detroit. After pursuing science for several years, Dr. Gopal now works full-time for Navya Shastra and other voluntary and charitable endeavors. She lives outside of Detroit in Troy with her husband and has a 17-year-old daughter at college. So we welcome to Common Threads, Jayshree Gopal. Hello, Jayshree. Hello, Fred. Namaste. Namaste. Very happy to have you here. Uh, Jayshree, uh, I... I uh, emailed you, you know, and I, I found um, a press release uh, on the Internet about your organization. I did not know that it existed, and I was quite surprised to find out that it actually exists here in Michigan. Mm-hmm. Is there? Do you have a counterpart, or do you have a branch of Navya Shastra in India? Uh, as such, we do not have branches of Navya Shastra in any place. But what we do have is we have members in India who participate with, uh, with us, and we have uh, representatives in India who work for us, yes. And, and could you um, translate Navya Shastra into English as best you can? You know, it's not very easy to translate Navya Shastra. Navya means new. Shastra means scripture. But Navya Shastra does not necessarily mean new scripture. It just means new interpretation of our scriptures or new traditions. Mm-hmm. Now, growing up Hindu in India and then moving here, what did the caste system mean to you? Did 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 you think of it growing up? Was it just something that, um, you know, it was just a part of the tradition that didn't mean a lot in your life, or was it something that you really had to adhere to? No, um, you know, I 
I, my parents, as you said uh, um, in your introduction, are originally from Tamil Nadu. But I was brought up in Delhi and Jharkhand. That is, Delhi is in North, North India, and Jharkhand is in the tribal districts of Bihar. Uh, during my childhood and teen years, far away from orthodoxy and tradition, I would say that I was actually unaware of caste discrimination those days, much like most children in urban India even today. Uh, it is only, uh, though caste was part of my life, but I was unaware of it. This, it these are two different things. When you say it was a part of your life, could you think of an incident in daily life or in school life? How would it manifest itself to you? Okay, uh, one incident I can think of is, for example, the person who comes and collects, used to collect our garbage from our house. That person was called Bhangi, and traditionally those people are considered untouchables. So the people in the neighborhood would say, oh, Bhangi is coming, don't touch them. So I just accepted that that person is a Bhangi and we are not supposed to touch them. It never occurred to me when I was a child of 10 or so to question why we are not supposed to touch the Bhangi. So now, as an adult, I can look back and know that they, were, they are considered untouchables. They belong to the caste that were traditionally untouchables, and they have inherited this, So, which makes all the difference. And similarly, uh, the tradition that I was, I belonged to, my parents' tradition, though we did not adhere to it very much, uh, does not allow uh, uh, the women or even the lower caste men to uh, chant the Vedas or wear the sacred thread, which is the one of the marks of the upper caste Hindus. Right, the so Brahmins. Yes, these are the part of things that I knew about them, but I did not realize that... Uh, these were discriminatory when I was young. Now, you yourself, according to an article I read uh, yesterday, you come from a Brahmin family, correct? Traditionally, yes. Yeah. Do you use that term at all to describe your, your status? I no, mean, no, not at all. So if someone was to ask you if you were a Brahmin, as I just did, you don't give a, a, a quick yes or no. You say, well, traditionally, that's yes. where I come from. Yes. Uh, it's an identity that I cannot shake off, even, I, even though I wish to. <laughs> uh, what about the, the castes in between, the government castes and the mercantile castes? Uh, did you have any interactions with them, or were you told how to interact with them? Uh, you mentioned before just the, uh, the so-called untouchables, the Dalits. Um, but what about the, the, the ones in between? You know, they, we were all just part of the same society. We went to the same schools. No, we went to the same colleges. I wouldn't have known anybody's caste, even if they were Dalits in school and college. So really, most of the discrimination is between the, the, uh, the Brahmins and maybe the uh, Chatriyas, and, uh, and then there's the, the Dalits. I mean... The, the most, uh, apparently, from what I understand now, is that the urban, the distinction is between the urban Hindus and the rural Hindus. The urban Hindus, as such... Don't, don't follow the caste system in their day-to-day -day life because the life does not allow it. But it is in rural areas where the discrimination is more uh, obvious. And there, the, 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 most of the distinctions come from the untouchables and the, that one caste just higher than them. They would be considered uh, in traditional terms as shudras, but nowadays they're referred to as other backward castes. I see. Uh 
let's talk about the history. Where does the caste system come from in Hinduism? Is it, is it truly an inherent part of the religion? You know, the history of caste is a very complex question with many unanswered questions and uh, gaps in our knowledge. I'll try to give a broad outline here, but I won't do justice to it. In the very ancient times, in the uh, Vedic times, that's the dawn of Hinduism, caste was considered very unstructured. There were definitely no hereditary class exclusivity those days, though there was some division between the the noblemen and the commoners, as in most societies. Uh, There definitely were no interdining and intermarriage taboos, and anyone was free to take up any profession. In fact, there is one ancient mantra from the most ancient uh, Veda, that is the Hindu sacred scripture, uh, Rig Veda, which says that, uh, Bard am I, my father is a healer, and mother grinds corn on the corn. Striving for wealth with varied plants, we follow our desires like kind. Flow into flow for Indra's sake. As you can see from this verse, each member of the family actually belonged to a different caste and ha- or had a different occupation. And this was the earliest mention of caste in the Rig Veda. Um, we have, uh, you mentioned all the four uh, caste categories just now, the, the priests who are the brahmanas, the kshatriyas or the warriors, vaishyas who are the businessmen, and shudras, the workers. This particular categ- uh, classification is first mentioned in also in Rig Veda in a hymn called Purusha Sukta, which many historians believe is a later addition to the original Rig Veda. What this says is from his face uh, or the mouth came the Brahmanas. From his two arms came the Kshatriyas. From his two thighs came the Vaishyas. And from his two feet came the Shudras. But you'll notice that nowhere does it mention that the Brahmanas are born of Brahmanas or Shudras are born of Shudras, and nor does it actually mention the caste hierarchy of superior or inferior. It is just a description. But it is the later scriptures, uh, which is one of them, the most famous one is Manusmriti, which corrupted the Purusha Sukta. Manusmriti is a law book of Hindus. It contains the codes of conduct for various individuals, castes, kings, kingdoms, and certainly uh, codifies the caste in hierarchy, with Brahmins at the top and Shudras at the bottom, and those who are considered outside the pale of Hinduism are the four Varnas. Manusmriti is a law book of Hindus which contains codes of conduct for various castes, kings, individuals, communities, and kingdoms. And it codifies the caste in the hierarchy with the Brahmins at the top and the Shudras at the bottom. And the Avarnas, or the Panchamas, or Chandalas, as they were called, the untouchables were called, outside the pale of the four castes. Many historians believe that the Manusmriti was never enforced by any Hindu kingdom. So it is, no, it is not really a valid Hindu scripture. 
But I'm sad to say that many orthodox traditions of Hinduism, even today, do uphold this as one of the scriptures. And this is where the caste divisions of Hinduism that, as we know it, have been perpetrated over the centuries. But unlike the Vedas, this is not considered authoritative to traditions. And definitely modern reformers have all rejected the Manusmriti. And certainly most modern liberal Hindus uh, do not care about the Manusmriti or the prescriptions, uh, prescriptions in those texts. So we can safely reject Manusmriti and safely reject the caste discrimination. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Common Threads here on WGVU Radio. I'm Fred Stella, and with me today is Jaishri Gopal, and she chairs the Hindu reform organization Navya Shastra, and today we're talking about the caste system. It's interesting, Jaishri, when you, you talk about this, uh, you talk about who Manu was and what he created. Mm-hmm. Uh, many people I have heard call Manu the Hindu Moses. Uh, And I know that a number of people in the Jewish and Christian traditions have uh, concerns with Mosaic law, because Mosaic law was, was, as you might know, very harsh. Uh Uh, The penalties for uh, behavior outside normal uh, social Uh uh, uh, mores Mm -hmm. was severe, to say the least. Uh So what you're saying is that people look, uh, look at Manu in in a similar fashion that these what he wrote has has no no business being <laughs> yeah definitely there are some being appropriate. few verses in Manusmriti which are nice once in a while you do come across some very uh, you know enlightening of uh, uh, verses but most of it is can be rejected safely and one thing i was not aware you're saying that you don't believe that any Hindu kingdoms actually enforced this caste discrimination? No, I believe. I, there are some historians who have done the research, and they've said that the kind of things that Manusmriti mentions, those punishments have never been, actually, there's no mention outside the scriptures that these have been actually carried out. So when do you think in Indian history did uh, caste discrimination actually take hold? When were people really... Uh, serious about separating the various uh, 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 divisions of labor? I would think that that happened in the medieval Hinduism. Uh, That would be sometime probably in the 7th or 8th century, probably, Mm -hmm. after that. Any idea how it may have uh, gained a foothold? You know, I'm not a historian, Fred, and while I can't make some uh, guesses, uh, it would not be accurate, so I would try not to do that. But what You'd be welcome to if you wanted. <laughs> well, there is no good reason, uh, there's no real reason why it would have happened at that time. But it just becomes, when a society becomes more mature and certain ideas are in practice, they just become more and more crystallized. And I think in the medieval times it did become very crystallized and the forecasts and, uh, were pretty much part of the Hindu society. But... But it's very interesting because it is at this time that some of the most important reformers of Hinduism were also born. So along with the caste, we also have reformers side by side who have condemned the caste. So that's how we know that this caste was part of, uh, strongly a part of Hinduism at, the, at, at that time because of the reformers' criticism. Yeah, uh, Swami Shankara comes from that era. Swami Shankara certainly comes from that era. And then Swami Ramanujacharya, who follows Shankara, and he is a great spiritual teacher and philosopher, following immediately following Shankara, maybe a, a century or so. And he was deeply distressed at the caste divisions. 
And so much so that apparently he, there's a secret mantra. Mantra means a sacred verse uh, that is for salvation uh, or moksha. He, uh, this used to be restricted only to the upper caste those days. He wanted everybody to get this mantra. So he went to the top of the temple and he shouted it so that everyone can hear it. The women, the untouchables, the shudras, everybody. Uh, it was a very brave uh, gesture those days. And he was persecuted, definitely, by the Brahmins of the time for doing this. But he was brave to defy them. And he was even he even told his wife, who did not like him, uh, his, being, his uh, fraternizing with the shudras, she, he told, him, told her that he could, she could not do that. So he was a reformer, one of the most, uh, for the first reformers, I think, of the medieval times. Now, one thing that I heard, and you can advise me if you want, mm-hmm. I heard that they had this long-standing tradition of of caste division by by skill set, as, mm-hmm. as you talked about. Mm-hmm. But then that the Brahmins, the people on top, the mm-hmm. priestly caste got very comfortable and enjoyed their status uh-huh. and wanted to simply pass it down to their family and, uh-huh. and sort of massaged the scriptures uh, to their liking. Yes. D- does this have any, any credence? Yes, certainly many people, modern reformers, do believe this is what happened, and it certainly makes sense that any group or, uh, that is in power would like to keep the power to themselves, and that's what happened. Brahmins did not have any power over... Uh, material power, but they certainly had the spiritual powers those days, and they would have liked to keep it within themselves. I wouldn't be surprised at all, you know. Now, you mentioned earlier that uh, urban Hindus in India, Mm -hmm. uh, caste has nothing to do with their lives, really, correct? Most of it, no, yes. I'm in fact surprised uh, when I I tell them that I'm doing Navya Shastra caste reform, they ask me, what caste? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I know. One time I was in Bangalore, and I was speaking to um, uh, taxi drivers, uh-huh. the little uh, the, 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 uh, motorized rickshaws. Uh-huh. And one would assume that uh, they would belong to the, the Shudra uh, caste. Not necessarily. You may assume that, yeah. No, no, no. But I'm saying that, that kind of skill set. Yeah, exactly. Huh? And I asked them, uh, there was a group of about maybe six or seven of them, and I asked them if, if they felt... Uh, that they couldn't go anywhere else in society because of caste, and they laughed at me. <laughs> you know, I, you know, what are you talking about? We can do everything we want if we get uh-huh. an education. So, so to the average Hindu living, say, in Mumbai or in Bangalore or in uh, Kolkata, New yeah, New Delhi, uh, those people to them, it's it's a non-issue. Exactly. And and but. Unfortunately, if, if I'm hearing you correctly, then that means that they aren't necessarily willing to put much energy into the demise of the caste system because it out of sight, out of mind. It doesn't yes, affect them. Yes, exactly. That is, that is very, very true. And that is exactly what we are fighting here. Our fight is more to awaken the minds of the Hindus who have distanced themselves from the caste and they now think there is no discrimination because they are not being discriminated against. They completely forget that there's a whole lot of Hindus out there in the rural areas who are still bound by the traditional worldviews, and they suffer discrimination on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, I, and I know that a lot of people suffer a little bit of denial when, when their own religion exactly. is, is criticized. Absolutely, absolutely. And I've spoken to uh, several Indians and asked them about the caste system, and uh, more than once, more than twice, the answer has been, oh, 
there's not really a problem, but politicians like to use oh, that yeah. as a yeah, rallying cry. Yeah, that is the, modest, the, the, the party line these days. <laughs> <laughs> what are they trying to say when, when they say that? You know, uh, this is very difficult because even I'm, we are criticized often by these Hindus, some of these Hindus, who feel that we are too critical of Hinduism and that we are highlighting the negative aspects of the Hinduism, and they become defensive. And they are apologetic about caste, as you just said. The, they mention politicians because in India there is a reservation system for, for based on caste. That means the government of India, you know, back in 1950s when the Constitution was written, untouchability was abolished but, uh, at that time. And they also introduced reservation for reservation is affirmative action, same as affirmative action. Yes, yes. For the Dalits, for, the, for both the uh, tribals and the untouchables. Later on, uh, that most Indians will not protest because they understand that those people have been discriminated against and they do need this kind of crutch for to rise up in the social life. But the next, uh, more recently, probably in the 90s, I think, there was another... Uh, um, system of reservation was introduced for uh, other backward caste. When the reservation uh, system was implemented, I think, I, I don't remember the exact percentages, probably 20% or so. Other backward castes are not untouchables. They are just a few steps ahead, uh, on higher on the caste hierarchy, but they are still backward socially and economically. But what has happened is a very large number of castes can come under this, this particular category. And not all of them are oppressed, and many of them are wealthy, and many of them are socially you know, powerful. So this has created tension in India amongst the, those, uh, the, the urban Hindus. They feel that it is the politicians who are manipulating the people to remember their caste each and every time because they are going for reservations. And you have to put in the name of your caste on all the forms that you fill out. So you're reminded of your caste. If, um, if someone from a lower caste lives in, in rural India mm-hmm. and then moves to uh, uh, Mumbai or, mm-hmm. or, or somewhere, mm-hmm. does he, that person may have been discriminated against all his life. Mm-hmm. But when he goes to Mumbai, does he completely lose that affiliation? Can he, can he start anew? Yes, he can. In fact, I have known of people who have completely shed their, uh, I mean, I cannot reveal who they are, but they have shed their caste identity completely, their untouchables or whatever, and no one knows that they are, uh, they were untouchables, and they are in very, some of them are in pretty prominent positions, but they simply will not reveal their ident- that particular identity, and it works for them. But in their society, there's no way that they can... Uh, um lose it. There's no way that somebody born in this particular uh, uh, tribal community or rural community, they, they just can't pretend that they're, they're something they're not, correct? As long as you're living in the traditional uh, worldview and the structure, it is a little difficult uh, to deny or to, to distance yourself from it because everybody knows that you come from that community. Right. What are some of the professions? You mentioned garbage collection. Uh-huh. Uh, if one is a Dalit, uh, what else might one do? Uh, the, another one is mochi, mochi chamar, that people, uh, the skinning, they, they work with leather. Uh, and they, are the, they make shoes in traditional India. Mm-hmm. And some other profession would be those who work on, on the funeral, funeral uh, um, no, where funeral sites where they burn the, uh, the dead, 
Yes. People who work on those sites, they are considered untouchables. Now, is it possible that some of this comes from uh, the fact that some of these people worked in, in professions that might actually be a little dangerous in terms of acquiring disease? Certainly. You know, those, that, those are the explanations um, the modern Indians like to give for these things because none of, no one wants, uh, likes caste. You know, that is, that's the truth. And no one likes the fact that there are people in our society who are considered untouchables. So we're all looking for explanations. And this is certainly one explanation that they, they worked in professions that are considered traditionally not clean. So they had to you know, live separately uh, initially. And then that has just... Per- Why this, this, these professions became uh, crystallized by birth is, you know, it's a mystery, but that's how it was. So. Uh, Jayshree, we're out of time, actually, for this edition of Common Threads, but we want to invite you back next week, and we can continue this uh, very fascinating dialogue that we're having. Uh, but before I let you go, if uh, people have any interest uh, in uh, checking out your work, Navya Shastra, how can they get a hold of you on the web or any other way? Yes, we have a website called uh, www.shastras.org, and we have our email address there, so anyone can contact us from there. Very good. Well, uh, Jayshree Gopal, thank you so much for uh, this time today on Common Threads, and we would look forward to continuing this next week. I'm Fred Stella. You're listening to Common Threads here on WGVU. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads. This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. Last week, for the very first time in the history of this show, we investigated the caste system within Hindu society. Our guest was Jayshree Gopal, who chairs the Hindu reform organization Navra Shastra. And she's with us again as we continue our conversation. Let me tell you a little bit more about Jayshree. She co-founded Navya Shastra in 2002. She was born in Chennai, India, and raised in New Delhi and the rural tribal district. Dr. Gopal was educated at the Indian Institute of Technology and holds a doctorate in molecular biology from Wayne State University in Detroit. After pursuing science for several years, Dr. Gopal now works full-time for Navya Shastra and other voluntary and charitable endeavors. She lives outside of Detroit in Troy with her husband and has a 17-year-old daughter at college. 
So we welcome once again to Common Threads on WGVU, Jayshree Gopal. Jayshree, hello. Last week we had a very fascinating conversation, and uh, I, th- I think uh, I'm very impressed with your historical analysis of the caste system and uh, th- uh, what is going on in India today Thank uh, you. To, to eradicate uh, this, uh, this bigotry. Uh, and my first question to you, and I, I meant to ask you this last week, you are now uh, dedicating your, your entire time to things uh, like Navya Shastra. Uh-huh. Um, what was it that pulled you out of molecular biology and and into this? <laughs> you know, that's a very interesting question. Uh, you know, uh, when my daughter was about 10, uh, I, was, I wanted to teach her about Hinduism. So I started reading more about it in order to explain it to her, especially the caste system, which she had learned about in her school a little bit. Uh, as I learned more and more, initially, like most other uh, urban Hindus, I was also defensive about it. But as I learned more, I realized that it's just much more to it than uh, the superficial uh, explanations that we give. And I went on to the Internet, actually, to discuss these issues with other Hindus, some kindred souls online. And we had a lot of debates and discussions about this. And afterwards, we thought, instead of just talking amongst ourselves, uh, why not uh, address these issues publicly and form an organization? And thus, <laughs> Navishastra was born. <laughs> but at the same time, at, at that time, when it was born, were you still working as a biologist? No, I, uh, I, okay, what I did, I was actually very, uh, for a short time, I was homeschooling my daughter when she was 10, so I had taken some time off to homeschool her, and that was my permanent break. I see. Okay. Let's talk about um, the caste system in in other religions in India. I was uh, kind of shocked a few years ago when I um, I heard a news report that there was a midnight mass at a Catholic church mm-hmm. uh, somewhere in rural India, mm-hmm. and that the, the upper caste Catholics did not want the lower caste mm-hmm. Catholics to attend the same mass. And so mm-hmm. to prevent a riot, the priest... Uh, said, okay, we'll have a midnight mass for the uh, for the upper caste, and we'll have a 1 a.m. mass following for the lower. Uh, does that surprise you? Are you aware of, of uh, caste discrimination within other communities? Yes, apparently I have heard about this quite often. In fact, the Dalit discrimination, there are Christian Dalit groups which are fighting for rights within the Christianity in India. So yes, I'm aware of it, but I see this as the problem for those religions to solve for themselves. <laughs> it's amazing because, uh, I mean, how do they? You probably can't answer this, but but it's it's an interesting rhetorical question. They do not have the um, uh, the scriptural legacy of Manu, uh, the the lawgiver who who sort of corrupted uh, the uh, caste uh, system. They don't have any of that in their religions. You you have I'm assuming no idea how this crept in, uh, just by osmosis maybe. Yeah. It's- they were born in those castes, so pretty much the, what it pretty much tells you is that even the Hinduism, it this came from outside the traditional, the the pure Hinduism, the spiritual Hinduism. This uh, this comes from the society, and just as it, this Christianity, caste and Christianity is obviously new in India, probably what uh, hundred years old. 
just imagine if they had had <laughs> lived there for thousands of years, how it, how it would have been. It may have been introduced in the Christian scriptures if it originated in India. <laughs> uh, and, and it's interesting, too, because uh, I also hear many Hindu activists uh, decry the uh, Christian missionary efforts in India, uh, and yet a number of people... Uh, do convert to Christianity and some to Buddhism mm-hmm. because of caste discrimination. Mm-hmm. And my thought is, well, if you don't want them to convert, you should uh, be working as hard as possible to to eliminate caste yeah, that's bigotry. exactly what we are doing. So we don't really condemn the the conversions. When we, are not, we pay attention to them, we understand that the missionaries are exploiting a certain weakness in the society. And that we, as you said, we have to work hard to make sure that we give a place of honor for everyone, not just for the few upper castes, but for the Dalits. I was uh, looking um, uh, on your website, and uh, someone, let's see, where did this come from? In some article, Uh I have this quote. It says, thousands of members of Navyashastra and other reform groups are seeking to go one step beyond Gandhi. What is that one step? Where did Gandhi uh, uh, um, leave off? Where are you taking that from? Okay, Gandhi did, uh, you know, when Gandhi came, uh, he left India when he was uh, probably a teenager to study in England, and then he went to South Africa, and then he came back to India when he was in his 30s. And one of the first things he observed was that a large section of the Hindu society was considered untouchable. He was deeply distressed at discovering this, and he was looking for solutions to eradicate this this stain on the Hindu society. And this was so. What he did was he renamed them Harijans. Harijans means children of God, and he immediately granted them dignity and elevated their status spiritually. But uh, that is how far he took it, and he also took up the profession of actually taking the night soil himself instead of allowing the Dalits to do it in his little farm in Gujarat. But uh, what we are doing is the one step ahead that is probably mentioned in that is is that we want to give uh, the sacred threat ceremony, uh, the initiation that was restricted only to the, to the three upper castes of Hindus for everybody, for all Hindus, including Dalits and women. So that is where we are taking one step ahead of Gandhi. Now, I thought the thread ceremony was for Brahmins only. You, you no, s- no, it's not. It's for all the upper castes, three upper castes, the Brahmins, Kshatriyas, and the Vaishyas. They are called Dvijas. Dvijas means twice born. When you have the sacred thread ceremony, you are born the second time. And this was given to all uh, the upper caste Hindu boys at the age of 7 to 11, uh, before they commenced, uh, began their religious studies. Now, here in America, is it fairly common to have uh, thread ceremonies for girls? You know, it's not. I have heard of one or two, uh, maybe, cases of people. Since my, my daughter, a few years ago, wrote an article about this, that it should be opened up to girls, so some people responded that there have been one or two girls for whom it has been given, but it's not very common at all. It's not part of the Hindu society here. What is the difference? There are two words. One is varna, the other is jat or jati. Mm-hmm. Both of them refer to caste, but yeah. in different ways. What is, what is the difference? Varna is the fourfold division of labor, which is the, the traditionally mentioned in the scriptures. That is, the you know, we mentioned the Brahmanas, the Kshatriyas, the um, Vaishyas, and the Shudras. 
Jats is the various little professions. Thousands and thousands of Jats are there in India. They're just little prof- the professions, little groups or communities based on professions. By themselves, the Jats are not discriminatory. They're just a group of people who have come together and who have formed a, pro- a group because they belong to the same profession. And this, the assigning of the Varnas to these Jats is the problem that has arisen in the Hindu society. So each jat is associated with a certain varna, and somehow this has been, you know, has been going on continuously in the Hindu society for many uh, centuries. Sometimes certain jats actually, uh, the originally they may have been considered uh, shudras, but they may have petitioned the the king of the times, and they would have risen in their status to kshatriyas. And that has happened historically that certain groups of jats have changed their varna status from one to the other. And they may have even dropped from one status to the other. Hmm. Tell us a little bit about your coming to America. Uh, how old were you, by the way, when you came here? Twenty-four. And tell us, what was it like being a Hindu in in the United States? Uh, what What changes might have might have taken place in you spiritually and also uh, how did your, uh, uh, your your new acquaintances react to your your new non-indian acquaintances react to you and were they were they um, curious about your traditions and all of that were they respectful yes you know i came into the academia in twain state uh, actually most of the first few years of my life was spent there and certainly in, in, in a university setting, people are definitely very respectful of each other. So, uh, and there were many of my colleagues and friends were from India, so they were, uh, it was not considered unusual to have a Hindu amongst in that particular lab. So uh, I, I would say that as such, it, the transition from India to U.S. was rather smooth, much smoother than I expected when I first came here. Did you, did you find yourself in... Uh many discussions about caste because, uh, as I mentioned last week, I think that for people who don't know a lot about Hinduism, it's the first thing, sometimes the only thing, uh, other than cow worship, <laughs> that people know anything, uh, that know enough to ask any questions about. Uh, was that an issue with you yes, or not? Yes, definitely. I'm pretty sure. You know, I cannot remember now. It's been a while. But I'm sure there were discussions about caste, and people must have asked me about caste. And I must say that, like most of the other Hindus that you mentioned before, I too was defensive, and I would say that I don't follow caste and don't practice caste anymore, and that the caste uh, has been eliminated in most of our, our society that I know of. But this is pretty much an upper caste view that I understand now, and that it is uh, those who are, who are on the other end of the discrimination are not here to speak up. So that is so it's, I have changed a lot from those days, from there to now, definitely. Right. It would probably be similar to somebody, say, in New York City, uh, asking about uh, the conditions of black America mm-hmm. and, and looking around and he sees, oh, these black Wall Street uh, brokers uh-huh. and businessmen and all of that uh-huh. and uh, and never sees the people in Harlem or never sees the people in rural Al- Alabama. Uh-huh. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So you have just distanced yourself from them. It doesn't mean it doesn't exist or it knows you. Yeah. Um, you, there's something in the in the site that was interesting. Apparently, a number of people felt that the tsunami 
that mm-hmm. uh, wreaked havoc in India a few years back mm-hmm. uh, was the was the uh, work of a vengeful god that had to do with uh, <laughs> what was that because of uh, because uh, why was that <laughs> I'm trying to remember yeah even I'm trying to remember now I remember we did send out a statement against that I'm trying to remember what it was now yes there was somebody who said that this was uh, this a payback. Uh, for the vengeful God of because I cannot remember now. Was it because um, uh, I think Kanchi Shankaracharya was arrested? That's it. Yes, that's yes. right. Yes. So they said this was the payback for that, and there was we were very upset at that 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 kind of uh, that kind of characterization of tsunami, which is a destruction. No, it is a work of God, nature of God, but not vengeful God. Not definitely based on one one event or one act. Yes. No, no. It it reminded me of uh, Jerry Falwell talking yes. about why the planes went into the uh, trade center. Um, so it, it sounds to me like while caste the the elimination of caste discrimination is your uh, most important mission, you you have other other uh, ideas about Hinduism and reforming Hinduism. So can, can we talk about that? What else would you like to see? brought into the light? What other changes or modifications would you, would you like to see in the practice of Hinduism? You mean other than caste? Yes. Uh, one thing that we did speak out against recently was about uh, the astrology. That, you know, the people follow astrology for getting married, especially. And what happens is that sometimes, uh, in general, it's not really uh, such a big problem because you did... But they just look for, they match the horoscopes of the girl and the boy. It seems, sounds quite innocuous. But sometimes, especially this happens only for girls somehow, that they are considered to be born under the unlucky stars. And such girls have a very difficult time getting married. And um, in fact, I have met a few of them. I, again, I've been brought up in a very liberal household where this was never an issue. But I've come across many women in their 20s, late 20s, who say, well, you know, I'm educated. You no, know, my my brother is in a, uh, in USA or Canada, but my parents are looking for a husband for me, and I belong to this. Uh, I was born under the star, and it's very difficult for me to get married. And I found that uh, uh, Aishwarya Rai, she's a famous movie actress, who had the same problem, and her in-laws or I don't know who had had her go through expiatory ceremony for the for being born under this unlucky star. And we thought. We should protest these kinds of discrimination against women, especially women, because only women seem to be affected by this. Only women are born on, under unlucky stars, is that <laughs> it? Certainly, <laughs> it seems that way, because I have not really heard of men having to undergo such ceremonies. <laughs> you need more female astrologers. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so we will, we will certainly want to get rid of these kind of you know, uh, unenlightened practices that can... We thought, I really thought these have been eliminated from the upper middle class society, but apparently not. It's still there. You know, it's interesting because when I speak to people, especially in the uh, fields of science, mm-hmm. uh, m- many of them are just so impressed with uh, what Hinduism has to say about uh, space-time, mm-hmm. uh, about the, the origins of the universe and things like that, the, mm-hmm. th- the things that really seem to correlate mm-hmm. to some degree with what with what science uh, has come up with. Mm-hmm. And yet, so you have, on one hand, very, very sophisticated mm-hmm. uh, studies, exactly. and on the other hand, very primitive practices. Yes. There's a huge disconnect between the theory and practice of Hinduism. 
And I have no real good explanations as to how this came about. But what we can do at this time is definitely get rid of the practices that do not are not in harmony with the original theories and original uh, spiritual thoughts. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Common Threads here on WGVU Radio. I'm Fred Stella, and joining me today is Jayshree Gopal, who chairs the Hindu reform organization Navya Shastra, which she co-founded in 2002. And I didn't see this on your site, which doesn't mean it's not there. It's just I didn't explore the entire thing. Um, how about the dowry issue? You know, we haven't uh, tackled uh, all of the issues <laughs> regarding Hinduism yet. <laughs> I know, there's a few things there to, to, to do, I understand. Yes, yeah, and you need some more things to do, right? So I will probably <laughs> enter, because uh, dowry is already being condemned, uh, you know, by the secular uh, uh, part of India. A lot of people are involved in that. And it's, you know, every, it's, there's not, it's not much to do with the religion, so I have... So far, I haven't found any direct correlation of dowry with the religion, so, so I've, that's why I probably have stayed away from it. No, as a matter of fact, uh, when uh, when I was in Bangalore, uh, I uh, spoke to a gentleman who uh, was working in opposition to dowry, and he himself was a Muslim and, and said mm-hmm. that it uh, it knows no religious bounds. Yeah. It's, it's uh, everywhere, unfortunately. Yeah. But there are some things, you know, we can't fight every uh, every cause because then it dilutes our main focus if you're fighting every injustice in the world. So, I mean, there are many more injustices all over the world. So we leave it to those uh, who are passionate about those causes. And we focus on one that is most important for the rejuvenation of Hinduism, that is to give equal status to a whole bunch of Hindus who are considered outside the pale of the society. Uh, Let's talk a a bit about your daughter's article, which I recently read. Uh, Your daughter met a pen pal that Mm -hmm. uh, she had in India for uh, a few years. Uh, Mm -hmm. Tell us about what precipitated uh, her going to India and what she discovered when when she met her pen pal and and the the family. Uh, uh, I forget. What was the original question? Uh, Just start with. Starting with. Yeah, uh, you know. uh, Okay. How she how she found the pen pal? Is that your question? Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. one of our advisors, uh, Dr. Ramdas Lam, he works. Uh, he has been working with the untouchables in a community uh, called uh, Chhattisgarh. In, in a, it's a state of India, Chhattisgarh, and this community is called Satnamis or Ramnamis, who are followers of God Ram. And this this untouchable community he has been working with them for the past 30 years or so, and he has been looking for Hindus, you know, Indian-born Hindus to take interest in that community, and he joined our organization for that purpose. And he told me me that there was a girl there about my daughter's age who would like to write to her. So I said, why not? So these two girls started corresponding with each other. You know, uh, that girl, uh, Kishori uh, is her name, she would write to my daughter in English, I mean in Hindi, and a little bit of broken English. My daughter would write in Hindi, and we would translate it and send it back to her. And somehow they have kept up this correspondence for about two years, and that family has been inviting us to visit them when we go to India. So last summer, when we were in India, we made the trek to Chhattisgarh. It was a long train ride, followed by, no, it was not that uncomfortable. There was, we went in a, I think, a car, no, van from the, from the station about two hours into a very small village. And this village is called Matiya. And we met uh, this whole family. Wow, this is amazing. This whole family was just, just we thought we were just going to meet with Kishori and her parents. Turned out her pa- 
the entire extended family was waiting to greet us and meet with us. It was a very, very touching moment for all of us, including my daughter. And my daughter was welcomed into that family as if she was one of their own. And, you know, they all started calling her Didi. Didi means older sister. And Behen means, like, a younger sister. You know, I was called Behen by everybody. She was called Didi by the little children. It was an amazing experience for my daughter, especially, who has never uh, been to rural India. And this, uh, so she, uh, and then uh, because she was already planning to write an article, so she was questioning, she took her notes with, notebook with her, with her and asked them some questions about their life. Well, on the surface, their life did not seem very different from that of the urban Indians. She found out that there was, they were being, uh, since they're untouchables, they were hidden and subtle discrimination that was going on in their lives, even though this particular family was relatively educated compared to most of the others in that community. And she was touched by this experience, and she came back and she said she was going to write a you know, much bigger article than she had planned originally. And that's what has appeared in the Hinduism Today of, I think, this um, this issue. Yes, that that's correct. Yeah, it is a very powerful and and well written article. And yes, I, and my daughter did a very good job because I, I she rem- she took down notes throughout the uh, process, so she remembered everything. I mean, while she was writing, she could go back to her notes and remember, recollect all the experiences, and she did a much better job than I'm telling you now. <laughs> no, no, you're doing you're doing just fine. Yeah, but it was a, it was an experience for a wonderful experience for her and me. Because even I haven't actually visited with an untouchable family of this kind in my life. So it was a wonderful experience. And we still correspond with each other. And we consider them as a part of our family, actually. They are our extended family. My, my daughter thinks of them as her cousins. In, in, the, in our uh, final moments together, uh, mm-hmm. uh, first of all, you mentioned, I think, last week uh, some criticism that you get. What what? criticism do you receive from the Hindu community, if, if any? Yes, we do get criticized. Uh, for, we could get criticized by different parts of the Hindu community for different reasons. One is, of course, the orthodox, extreme orthodox Hindu community, which does not like, uh, they do believe in the caste system because they follow the Manusmriti. And they definitely criticize us because they believe that you know, these kind of uh, opening up the Upanayanam tradition to everyone is not acceptable. So that is a, that that kind of criticism is understandable. Any orthodoxy of any religion will uh, resist change. But another kind of criticism that we get is from the urban educated Hindus. Uh, they uh, they feel that uh, we are highlighting the negative aspects of Hinduism because we criticize the discrimination if it happens openly in the press. It's out out there for everyone to see. So they feel we should not talk about this in the open. This should be a closed affair. So that kind of, and then we are sometimes called anti-Hindu by these people. And that's really hurtful because we are definitely not anti-Hindu. How can it be anti-Hindu to stand up for your own Uh, brothers and sisters, but uh, some of them are just defensive, and we hope to change their minds in the future, and some of them do change their minds eventually. When they first confront us, they feel that we are wrong, but eventually some of them change their minds, 
and some don't. It depends on their mindset. Well, you know, as uh, as uh, Christians say, it was uh, the Christians were the slave owners, and the, the Christians were the abolitionists, uh-huh. uh, working to free Christians because uh-huh. most of the slaves were, of exactly. course, Christian. Well, Jayshree, thank you so much for your time today, and also uh, for last week. It was thank a you, very Fred. wonderful thank conversation. You. It's an honor to be on your show. You've been listening to Jayshree Gopal, our guest today. She chairs Navya Shastra. A, an anti-caste discrimination uh, organization. I'm Fred Stella. Thank you so much for joining us here on Common Threads. You're listening to WGVU.